This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Alison Pennington, Senior Economist at the Centre for Future Work, joined me to talk about the increasingly deregulated labour market and how women are experiencing rising inequality due to COVID-19. Then, freelance writer Anthony Hamm discusses his new book, The Last Lions of Africa. Stories from the front line in the battle to save a species. Then, finally, Dr Emma Shortis from RMIT talks about the latest in US politics, including concerns around Trump's ongoing undermining of the US Postal Service and the effect it may have on postal voting in the November presidential election. And I welcome Alison now. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. It's really um, fantastic to chat with you, and I have been appreciating your work um, from a distance. And I did um, read your Jacobin article from a while ago. I think it was in March um, when you know this was all starting, and we were kind of in the first wave of uh, COVID nineteen here in Australia. And um, and it was something that it did strike me that uh, workplace conditions and the way that the Australian economy has been set up and um, I guess eroded in some ways in terms of um, the power base and the power structures, um, that it would actually be affecting a huge number of people. And we've seen that come to fruition, unfortunately, in so many different ways, which we will get to. Um, But I did want to first take a kind of temperature check and um, cast our minds back to before we knew there was something called COVID-19, because I think a lot of people, um, and certainly in discussions I had had, and no doubt even um, for your in your role, you would have been talking about the Australian economy and the figures and, you know, this is a, a kind of rolling commentary that we all have as to what's happening and how the federal government is faring. But I do remember having so many conversations about, well, wages are flat and, you know, the productivity is not changing. And yet there were so many kind of economic um, metrics that were not particularly good. Underemployment was high. And uh, I wonder whether you could share with us from your perspective where the Australian economy was in terms of the federal government's management and the kind of levers that they can pull policy levers to actually alter things and improve things for the better before coronavirus? And, you know, what kind of position were we in? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting because the it launches from the narrative that immediately came out at COVID time of snapback. And so for, I think, for millions of Australian workers and for you know, lots of people who were tracking what was going on in the Australian economy, the concept of a snapback was obviously fantasy um, based on the very the weakness of private sector investment, so the unwillingness of businesses to actually invest in putting people into jobs and into new businesses. Um, and uh, it was it was fantasy and it was clearly an ideological agenda um, to, to create this idea of a business-led recovery when what was actually going to have to happen um, was based on the weakness of, of the, um, the economy was that the public sector or government would have to be leading all investment and uh, activity coming to pull us out. So some of the the main markers that you've um, identified were we had a wages crisis leading into um, this COVID crisis, which was the 
we had the slowest um, pace of wage growth in any sustained period since the Second World War. And that really kicked into another whole gear from 2013 when the coalition government was elected. And that's um, primarily about the, the what kind of signal does that does that government then send to employers that it's free reign to cut wages? Um, also, there are attacks on the public sector wage base, which is very important into upholding overall wages in, in an economy. And their industrial relations agenda. So, you know, if people might remember the Ensuring Integrity Bill, the so-called Ensuring Integrity Bill, um, which would give the, the state the full right to completely um, dismantle free rights of people to come together in unions and uh, ask for higher wages um, by allowing them to deregister unions for, you know, very small paperwork breaches or, you know, basically doing their jobs. So that the wages crisis was uh, already in, in place. Um, and that's partly connected to the low productivity problem, which is when businesses weren't getting smarter or more efficient or more capital intensive in how they were doing business. We actually had a decline in investment of about a third from 2012 onwards. Um, and that's partly because of the the, the uh, very lucrative and uh, tasty, you know, easy, accessible, oversupplied labour market that employers have had been able to just pick into and just get free reign over millions of people who have just needed more hours, more work and hungry for that. And that's what that does is it actually stops employers being forced to invest in new technologies and being more efficient in how they do things and allows them to create business models that depend on cheap labour, um, which, of course, is horrible for millions of people who have seen their, their working lives decline um, in terms of security of employment, wages, um, you know, and all of this all of this is coming to a head now in the COVID crisis. Mm. It, um, yeah. it certainly – oh, sorry, I think there's an echo. Have you got your headphones? Uh, no, I'm no. just – Let's just say I think it's stopped echoing now. Oh, okay. oh no, I'm still echoing. Are you able to um, turn your sound off? On your side, just so I can't, we can't hear me through your computer. Uh, yep, I'll mute myself. Hopefully, I'll be able to hear you though. Let me see. I've muted. Perfect, and you can hear me. Hello. Yes. Yes. And I can hear you. Yay. Okay. Well, it's all good. Sorry, everyone. We're tech troubleshooting as we go. Thank you for bearing with me, Alison. Um, and that brings me to uh, one of the issues you're raising there around, you know, people, employers in particular, not having to invest, not having to commit to certain amounts of investment and um, not investment in material, um, but also in people, of course. And it reminded me of the F word, which is flexibility. And, um, of course, it's been used in a whole range of environments and what flexibility means in industrial relations and what a government says when they would like flexibility in the workforce is not what um, women who are coming back from maternity leave mean when they want some flexible working hours. Like there, there is some overlap, but there is certainly a bit of um, motivational difference and ideological difference in this um, situation. And I wonder in terms of the 
the kind of increasing um, flexible nature of work and the fact that we do have so many people in casual roles and also in multiple part-time roles having such a kind of mosaic of jobs. Um, and of course, there are people in full-time work, but it has certainly declined. I just wonder what your thoughts are around um, workplace flexibility and how the federal government has, you know, no doubt been focusing on this for much longer than the current period, but have they increased or sharpened that focus? Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the Australian labour market has been declining in standard traditional jobs in the way that we would conceive of them, of, you know, year-round available employment, permanency, basic entitlements like sick leave and annual leave. And it definitely, uh, that, that is not some inherent natural trend um, there are economic structural factors, but there's been a pretty strong political agenda to deregulate the labour market. And that's on the basis of you know, the idea that um, I think a lot of young people have, you know, grown up with this sort of rhetoric as they've been shafted in the labour market of this idea of, uh, you know, footloose, entrepreneurial, flexible, flitting from one job to the next. And that's supposed to be a, a sign of your power when actually what's been happening the whole time is that employers have been severing their obligations to people that they make money out of, essentially, as their employees, and they're finding all these different ways around uh, having not having to pay for the reproduction of a human life, essentially. Like, they can force those costs back onto individuals. And so flexibility for employers is absolutely about the uh, freedom to hire and fire at will whenever they want based on matching humans up with their labour demand at any point in time. And so the, hi the history of, of unionism is one of um, forcing employers to cover the costs of, of human lives. Um, and this is, again, this is the, the COVID crisis is really bringing this to a head because you've got people working multiple jobs to pulling, you know, bits and pieces together of piecemeal work to try and pay their bills. Um, and not in the least, labour hire workers um, in the aged care sector, uh, who where, where it's a big focus of the, the workplace contaminations now. And um, a lot of these workers are majority female um, in insecure positions, low paid, often migrant workers who are moving in between um, facilities now. And so if we want to close down workplace outbreaks, we can't have people locked into this flexible work that's... that's um, you know, where you're mixing between facilities, potentially taking the virus with you. Um, and there is no indication from the Commonwealth Government that they have any, that in fact, they are trying very, very hard to avoid responding in the industrial relations system to this very obvious fact about uh, contagion and this, the, the health crisis that we're in. Um, and I think the, the, the decision that the, the Commonwealth made yesterday that it was announced uh, they would introduce a disaster payment for these 250,000 Victorian workers who will be stood down for the period of this lockdown. It just shows, uh, you know, it's it. we have to get those payments out quickly, but a, a government payment, a once-off government payment that's means-tested is not the same as changing our industrial relations laws to fix the structural problem, to give those people, um, you know, permanency, access to, to paid sick leave, and, of course, those are costs that would have to be borne by an employer, which the Commonwealth is is trying at all costs to avoid, is to protect essentially the profit rates of, 
of employers in those sectors. Um, and so, yeah, it's. I think this this crisis is showing the the huge gap, you know, the rhetoric in the, the gap in rhetoric between flexibility and reality. Um, and I think there's a real need to to kind of reassert what is a worker focused, worker centred model of flexibility. And it is absolutely a good example is the right of a woman to be able to um, take or any any parent to be able to take uh, parental or maternity leave and be able to return to that to their workplace um, without lesser conditions, lesser security, lesser lesser pay. Um, but that is that runs counter to the the very corporate you know, business focused model of flexibility, which is purely on the side of employers to be able to dispose of people uh, as they as they wish. Um, so I, I do think that that this deregulatory agenda that's been going on for the whole neoliberal period for decades is is reaching it's we're reaching a confrontation point with it and it's in many ways it's it's daunting but it's also quite exciting I think mm. yeah. Yeah. oh I'm still awesome. echoing that's really weird um it's okay <laughs> I'm still in terms of sorry I'm getting put off by weird sound gremlins in our computers um in terms of flexibility, one of the things that you highlight and you're talking about these, um, you know, for example, women who go on maternity leave and who need to take that time off and then they come back to work and perhaps they might work as a casual or uh, as a part-time um, employee and then maybe they might increase uh, eventually to full-time work, for example. And so many studies have shown that uh, women put in those positions where they're working three or four days a week are actually far more productive um, on the whole than their full-time counterparts and they seem to cram in a lot more into work um, than than people who are there full-time. And I wondered, that was, you know, when we were all turning up to offices or other places of work and um, kind of sitting at a desk or being in a shop or, um, you know, going on a construction site. Um, but nowadays, now that we're seeing people working from home or a huge number of people having to work from home, um, not essential workers, of course, who do have to go in to their places of work. But I'm wondering now that we see, we're seeing such a growth in working from home in some sectors, whether that might lead to potential exploitation and expectations from employers that people should be on and available and able to answer emails at any time of day and kind of being, in a sense, um, unofficially on call. What are your thoughts about that and the, the kind of um, potential ways that the current COVID-19 situation and the ways that particularly Victoria in lockdown has had to change the way of doing things. What do you think of that and, and how that might be used to, um, to benefit employers and obviously conversely if there are benefits for employees? Yeah, I mean, this is the, the pandemic because it it forced us to think about how do we stop transmission. It meant naturally anyone who could work from home should stay in the home. We found early on in the shutdowns, uh, we, some our research uh, estimated around 30% of the Australian workforce could work from home, um, which is, you know, that still leaves 70% who couldn't. And 
it's a it's a quite a, a remarkable um, kind of new form of labour market segmentation that's been introduced uh, because people who can work from home are most likely administrative professional you know, managerial employees who can have more agency over their work, they can work from a computer um, and, yeah, have more independence in their work, um, work hours. They were already more likely to have permanent work and they were also more likely to be um, to have then paid sick leave. So while they were able to save themselves from being, a, a, you know, part of the contagion and save themselves from getting COVID, uh, they were also then more likely to have these, these entitlements uh, then, and the other thing that happened is actually people who can work from home earned about 25% more than those who couldn't. So we saw this this separation opening up where people could stay home, continue to earn an income, uh, which is important to continue to derive an income in this time. Um, but then we had this other increasingly uh, exposed workforce of essential workers predominantly who then re- were also, um, you know, outnumbered by low-paid, insecure female workers who didn't have paid sick leave. So we, there was, first of all, we'd say that this this division has created this new level of inequality. But what we've also seen in this time is um, if we use a looking at the gender aspects of this, because uh, the, the government has failed to provide adequate supports to offset the massive explosion in the caring burden because we've had, you know, children who have been pushed out of schools and told to learn from home um, that need oversight. There are, you know, elderly family members that need caring, you know, and and the wider community, which we know women tend to do more of this work um, historically and definitely now. So because there was this explosion in the caring burden, for women who did have secure jobs and could work from home, they were then actually still more likely to cut their hours and to, uh, to sacrifice their paid work um, opportunities in order to take up that unpaid caring work. So there's there's from a gender aspect, you'd say there's there's a possibility that by privatizing work and pushing um, paid work into the home, which is where women are already working in an unpaid sense, it is actually um, escalating the gender inequalities of of the crisis. Um, then there is, of course, a whole raft of risks of that come out of this work from home time, um, and also opportunities. And this gets to this flexibility question. There, are, for some workers, I think the flexibility of working from home saved commuting times, uh, less money spent on you know getting to work and back, uh, you know more control over the hours. There are some workers who I think are are doing better off and are benefiting from this period. But from an industrial relations perspective, they are increased. They, these people are very vulnerable still. Even if you're enjoying it now, there is still all of the all of the potential that we see a a generalising of the kinds of strategies that we've seen in the big consultancies like PwC and EY, where they sent all their workforce home, cut their pay by 25%, and told them to maintain their productivity levels because there were redundancies coming. And so you had people in a time of deep anxiety and insecurity and crisis um, being, you know, whipped essentially uh, and pushed into a very, you know, places that workers shouldn't be put into in a time of, you know, collective national health crisis. Um, and those people, a lot of people were laid off um, regardless of their productivity levels anyway. So there's there's a, the p- potential that this isolation that workers are in now is exploited by, by employers 
Um, there's huge concerns for work health and safety because by our laws, employers are required to provide a, a, self, a, a, safety, a safe and, and healthy work environment. But uh, people don't have spare offices. That's not something that's that's generalised across Australia. What's more likely happening is people are working from their beds or their kitchen tables, um, sharing a lounge room with, you know, housemates playing Xbox and you're trying to get work done. And, like these are not ideal circumstances and what the, the employer is still liable for to provide a safe environment. Um, the other um, concern that we have is around surveillance. We found 70% of uh, workers surveyed before this crisis had some form of digital monitoring or surveillance of their work by the employer. And we think that these a lot of these technologies, if they're on work laptops and work devices, are actually just being pulled into the home now. So there's really not enough protections for workers' privacy uh, with, with these new technologies. Um, and, of course, the biggest issue is the, mis- the big cost shift. So we've had the ATO has said that we can people working from home can offset some of their costs of setting up a home office, um, but it's it's a it's really scratching the surface of the you know the kinds of costs that people are taking on right now. Um, office work said that they were cleaned out of desks, monitors, printers because workers were going on and spending thousands of dollars of their own money to set up a home. And, yeah, there is no protections in our industrial relations system to say that employers should take on those costs. And, and they, they, this is definitely, you know, in the list of things that need to – reforms that need to be brought forward so that people aren't going backwards in this time. Mm. Yes, of course. And um, certainly tax deductions are, you know, not – they can be used, but there are so many different rules and um, requirements for this. So it's not like a solution, as you say. We need something that is kind of top level and um, mandated by the government. I wanted to pick up on what you were saying about uh, women and the impact on women, um, certainly particularly looking at job losses and, um, you know, Gen Vic, uh, released some really interesting statistics around um, the effect that this has had on Victorian women in particular, um, suggesting that 55% of job losses due to COVID-19 have been um, suffered by women. And also that we've seen a real increase in the levels of stress, anxiety and depression um, that women particularly have been experiencing. And no doubt part of that is the financial aspect of things, but also the caring aspect um, if they have children and depending on their the situation with their partner, if they have a partner. Um, we did see a 2,800% increase in demand uh, to the Women's Mental Health Clinic at the Alfred Hospital in one month. So it seems like... Um, as you say, there are so many aspects feeding into this, the caring element, the um, insecure work and job losses. But also, as you say, women are also on the front line um, as teachers, as early learning, um, childcare uh, teachers, as retail workers, as nurses, as aged care um, employees. And so, so many of these um, kind of caring roles and um, female-dominated industries have also become risky, like inherently risky given COVID-19. And, um, you know, it is really no surprise then that women might uh, feel a greater level of uncertainty and stress and strain in the situation we find ourselves in. Of course, that doesn't mean that men aren't also experiencing um, similar things. But it 
does, you know, we, we knew that these kind of female dominated industries existed before and um, we were kind of like giving lip service to it and trying to change it, but it was very, very slow. Um, and they were also just so, so much more low paid that women's superannuation was, um, you know, depleting and that, uh, and certainly women when they retire were often going into poverty um, and some becoming homeless. So I just wonder, given that inherently gendered situation of the economy, what your thoughts are about the federal government's response. And in a sense, it's not really gender blind in my mind. It seems to be more focused on sectors that um, that have traditionally been uh, employing men. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's a, a lot of the discussion so far has said, uh, well, we, if we apply the same thing to an unequal, the same measures to an unequal society, we re, we reproduce gender inequalities. But I, I, my assessment is actually, their government is is in. I don't want to say they've got fully laid out plans because that gives them more than I think they deserve. But I, I think that there's a pretty concerted um, attack on female-dominated sectors. Um, in terms of, I'm thinking the childcare sector, which was the mm. first to have uh, the JobKeeper subsidy cut from it, there was absolutely no reason to do that. Um, and government f- understood at the start of this crisis that free childcare was an essential service in the time of this crisis because you know getting allowing women to stay in their jobs was seen as an important part or connected to their employment, an important part of the economic and social response. So then how is it that within, you know, uh, a far in time, really, considering the pandemic's going to continue to rage, that they decided, well, demands reach 70% of what it was pre-COVID, that's enough now, um, we're going to cut these payments. And so childcare workers are some of the most underpaid workers already for their, you know, huge skill sets. They're, they're teachers and they're paid um, as unskilled workers essentially. So that that's that was a, a real concerning development, um, but as you said, this is the picture developing is is definitely one of women uh, by way of their more insecure position in the labour market and the fact that they were at the same time in those customer facing sort of human centred roles. It means that uh, combined with the caring explosion, they are experiencing the worst labour market impacts. So this, uh, like what we found from, from March up until June, which is the, the latest ABS stats, it's, it's very, very clear that women were more likely to lose their jobs. They were more likely to lose hours, so to, for employers to cut back their hours or for them to cut back their hours. And they were more likely to leave the labour market altogether. Uh, so something like by last month, almost 400,000 women had left the labour market altogether. That's not even on an unemployment benefit. So, you know, why is this happening? It's, it's at the same time as we have women who are in those, um, so female-dominated frontline sectors like healthcare and education, which are, again, overworked, underpaid, and that definitely links into the heightened levels of stress and anxiety of women workers who, you know, then go back home to their families and have to do more work. Um, but then also young women. Young women predominate those customer-facing sectors that were shut down early in, in the health orders. 
uh, so hospitality, retail, uh, the arts. And I, I think if we're talking about the issue of anxieties and, and um, you know, senses of, of deep insecurity, it, it stems from the fact that women are, are copying it on every level. Uh, they haven't, there isn't really a, a space, many spaces in the labour market you can say women are doing as good or as good, like as good as they did before or, um, you know, where they're not experiencing some new pressures uh, perhaps a small layer of professional, um, you know, managerial female employees. So, yeah, absolutely, government has made this worse. They denied JobKeeper the important subsidy that could have supported so many young women's jobs in those customer-facing sectors. They were denied um, with the exclusion of short-term casual employees. Uh, we've also had government bring forward very, very little by way or nothing by way of job creation, stimulation projects. They've done nothing to do that. Uh, they've instead funneled some money, not, not even enough because it's not, it's not, we don't want to, to cut these things, but in the absence of anything else, they're only putting money into those very bloke-heavy industries like construction. And, you know, they've, they've brought forward construction uh, infrastructure projects, that home builder project, which was really pittance, but it was designed to, um, allow people with existing own occupied housing or investment houses to renovate, you know, which is very low in the priority, I would say, uh, within a crisis. Um, and they've also, to top it all off, they've cut the job seeker payment, which is what they announced um, the week of their mini budget, um, not last week, yeah, early last week, which cut the job seeker payment by $300 a the, the supplement $300 a fortnight. So if you are if you track the experience perhaps of a, a say a single mother who had a, a part-time insecure job uh, she was more likely to be sacked than she was okay because she had her kids in in the childcare system. She couldn't afford to pay for the childcare, but at least the kids were connected to a community and being socialized, spending time with you know, same time with other people and she had some time to look for work perhaps or get the house in order, then that child free childcare was cut. She is now um, not able to get uh, the wage subsidy, so she goes on to the unemployment benefit and now it's being cut in the name of looking for work. What is a Victorian single mother, as an example, What is how on earth is she supposed to go out right now and look for work? Um, all, that's, all that that job seeker payment cut has done has plunged hundreds of thousands of Australians into into poverty. Um, the Australian Institute actually found it was about 370,000 people and 80,000 children that were affected by that by that one cut. So it's it's the, the the unemployment benefit is part of the overall picture about what happens to women workers since they are more likely to be low wage and insecure if the unemployment benefit is being weaponized to push those people to look for, first of all, non-existent jobs, but then when those jobs do open up, they're going to be poorer conditions um, and more likely to be, you know, low wage, uh, you know, insufficient hours work. Uh, so it's the overall picture that's that's emerging is one where women are losing access to paid work, losing independence, economic independence, becoming more be more in uh, more dependent on partners, and often that's more likely male partners. Uh, which is the source of, you know, domestic violence, that kind of insecurity and and in, and dependence, and they're more dependent on government and the state. So it's 
it's a it's a reversion of progress, decades of progress that women have fought for to get access to um, economic security. Uh, and it is one of the most troubling and concerning parts of, of, of this whole crisis and how it's panning out at the moment. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And I really appreciate the way you've taken us through that and given us some real life examples um, because it is easy to reduce things to numbers and not to understand how things can truly affect someone at an individual level. And no doubt they are affecting both men and women right now, um, particularly in Victoria, given that we are um, in such a huge new set of restrictions um, coming into effect towards, well, tomorrow for most people and others um, by Friday. I really appreciate your time today and your expertise, Alison, and thank you so much for joining us and um, and really shining a light on some of these huge issues that are certainly not being dealt with adequately or even close, really, um, and maybe if, if they can acknowledge the problem first, that'll be a start. Yeah, right on. I agree. <laughs> Thanks, Amy. Thank you, Alison. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. And you're tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins, and I'm really delighted to have joining me today freelance writer and photographer Anthony Ham. And uh, we are talking about a book that he has just released called The Last Lions of Africa, Stories from the Frontline in the Battle to Save a Species. And it's out now via Alan and Unwin. And Anthony joins me now via Zoom. Hi there, Anthony. Hi, Amy. Thank you so much for joining us today and congratulations on this book, which is such a beautiful read. Thank you so much. There's so many great stories in this book and we are going to touch on some of the fascinating stories that uh, you do have in your book. One of the things that I first up wanted to ask about though is that you clearly have a lot of content to draw upon, a lot of experiences to draw upon in your work being a freelance writer and also contributing to a number of travel books. And um, I just wonder in terms of your overarching career and professional life, how did you end up focusing so much attention on Africa and what was your experience visiting Africa so many times? For me, uh, Africa's always been a place that from the minute I first stepped onto African soil, and it's a bit of a cliche that everyone talks about going to Africa, you do feel, or a lot of us feel, a real sense of, of, of coming home, a real sense of um, the warmth of the people, the landscapes. There are some landscapes that, that call to mind Australia, the big horizons, the big, you know, the wildlife. Obviously, so the wildlife is a little bit different, but there is a sense of still some wilderness that does survive. And that's always, in some ways, been my driving force. Africa is also filled with so many different stories. And, and I think we do, a, we do a bit of a disservice to a lot of the bigger issues such as climate change, such as extinction, because they're such big issues and people find them really hard to actually connect to them because they are such overwhelming issues. And so what I wanted to do with my writing was find individual stories, and there are so many of those in Africa, because people can connect with those stories and they become a part of the story and that makes the whole issue of extinction, in the case of lions, much easier to understand. 
That's such a great point. And um, I know that, you know, lions do hold a really special place in a lot of people's hearts. And I mean, they're obviously a huge part of popular culture as well and art. And um, they are such a, a beautiful species. Humans have such, you know, close connections with lions. And I wonder, in terms of your experience going to Africa and, you know, witnessing them in their natural environment and also some quite unnatural environments or less natural than than normal, how did you connect with lions and what was your experience of them? Lions are one of those creatures that, that it doesn't matter how many David Attenborough documentaries you've seen, when you actually see them in real life, they are every bit as impressive, more so than you ever imagined. And that, that that's true of some animals such as elephants and so on, but they really are the true giants of the animal kingdom in a sense. They're top of the tree when it comes to predators. They're charismatic. When, they're, when lions are around, you, you get the sense that everything in that, in, within, within range, within that, on those planes is aware of that lion being there. They, they capture the attention of everything. I've spent a lot of time and some of my happiest memories are camping out in Africa in tents and in, in vehicles and, and listening to the lions roar during the night. And that's something that's both thrilling and frightening and exciting all at the same time because it really is the the the, the essence of Africa in a sense, of wild Africa that is, and Africa is a very diverse place, but the essence of the wilderness areas that remain is that sense of wildness and lions speak to that with that roar, with that that presence on the plains. Mm, it's it seems like it would be a very visceral experience to hear not just the lions roar, but I guess the the rest of the orchestra of sounds in Africa. It is, and they can be. It can be frightening. Most often, it's exciting. It sounds frightening when you think about it in advance, but when you're actually lying there listening to lions, it's you feel alive. You feel. Uh, and it's not just lions. I mean, it might be the hyenas laughing and you know, hyenas get a pretty raw deal because of uh, Lion King. Uh, <laughs> everyone sort of seems to think they're these sinister creatures, but, you know, they, they're really charismatic as well. Or, or elephants, you, you can have elephants sort of foraging around your, uh, around your tent and they, when they wander off, you, can, you realise that you've been holding your breath just because it's so exciting and you know that you, you know, you're right next to one of these myth, almost mythical creatures. Yeah, it seems like it's something that not everyone, well, it's clearly something not everyone would get to experience in their lifetime. And yeah, every African species or animal seems to have such a distinct personality and a, a distinct visual characteristics as well. Absolutely. And I mean, I think the lion, because as you said before, it's it's been such a part of our mythology and, and the same with African, many African people as well, traditional peoples, there is a, a real connection with lions. And, and it's because, not least because of the, of the way they look, they are this, uh, there is nothing quite so impressive as a, lion, a male lion with his luxuriant mane um, you know, in, the, in the morning sunlight. It is a quite extraordinary thing. And it does really... Uh, I mean, it can be an almost um, spiritual experience. I, I don't wish to mm. overplay it, but it's certainly the way I feel when I'm out there. Oh, I, I, I can understand that, absolutely. It almost um, seems like they have a sense of regalness, like they, they do seem like they are at that higher plane that you're saying, they're kind of right at the top and they belong there. They do, and and you know, I'm sure I'm sure they know it as well. The, <laughs> they're one of very few animals that can actually... Uh, lie down wherever they want, fall asleep, and know that no one's going to bother them. 
they can walk across a plane. And I've, I've watched or I've followed lions walking across a plane and every animal that is within a kilometre stops and watches and is ready to run at any moment. The lion may not have even noticed it <laughs> just because he or she knows that he doesn't have to worry. The only people, well, the only people, the only creatures they really have to be concerned about are us. Um, and in many places, mm. in, in where we're in truly wild places, the, you know, they don't have to worry about us at all. Out of curiosity, how does a lion and an elephant interact, if at all? Um, they give each other a pretty wide berth in most cases, but there are a number of places in southern Africa in particular, a place in Botswana in the 1980s, uh, and again now the big place is, is Wangi National Park in Zimbabwe, where lions are actually developing the the skill of hunting elephants and uh, that is an extraordinary differential when it comes to body weight when it comes to to strength but um, lions now in some areas do hunt elephants and they don't hunt the babies because the babies are very well protected by the mothers i've been in a situation where i've accidentally come too close to a to a young baby and all of a sudden four uh, adult elephants surrounded her and she was in the middle and completely protected and so what the lions will do is they'll attack the adolescents. And so we're talking an even bigger lion yeah. than just a baby. And, and so, that I mean, that is truly one of the, the most disturbing, compelling uh, encounters in the animal kingdom because there is something special about elephants as well. And normally they yeah. don't need to worry about being preyed upon by other animals. But in some places they do actually. Uh, in other places they'll, they'll give each other a wide berth. That's really interesting. Elephants are definitely my favourite, I've got to say. That's for another day. In terms of how you begin this book, I was really interested that you chose to start in Kenya in 2011 and you were looking at um, a really fascinating group of African traditional peoples over in Kenya known as the Maasai tribe and you were looking at these young Maasai warrior men one very much in particular, Metaranga, and I was really intrigued that you chose that one because I guess when you first were reading the story of the Maasai warriors and what they did to demonstrate their manliness and their courage and their strength was to kill lions and that was part of their culture and I was really hoping that the uh, narrative would change because I was it made me a bit sad to think of so many lions dying but then it had this fascinating turn of events and uh, I wonder whether you could share with us how you came to be in Kenya and and meet um, the Maasai tribe and the people working with them and and what first brought you to their story? Sure. I was at the time in 2011, 2010, travelling around Africa, really looking for stories because I, I knew that I wanted to tell the stories of lions because of their importance and um, perhaps we'll talk about that a bit later. But the mm. the when I um, I was in contact with an Australian scientist, one of the world's leading cat experts called Dr. Luke Hunter, who at the time was with Panthera, a big cat conservation organisation. He's now with Wildlife Conservation Society. And he put me in contact and said, look, I think there's some really good work going on here. And I travelled to Kenya. And I think what drew me to the story was when I first came to Africa, and I, I was still learning about lions, I assumed that all lions lived within national parks, behind fences, People would go and see them and they, were, they weren't at risk from the people and people weren't at risk from them. 
as it turns out, 80% or close to 80% of lions live outside national parks. Lions live among the people. And that, to me, is... Um, it's like, you know, instead of in Australia in the bush, you know, people will go out into their backyard and find a brown snake. It's like walking out into your backyard and finding a lion. Kids are going to school um, through lion country, people are going to the, the river to collect water. And so the Maasai were a case where they were right outside a national park. There was a lion population. There was a big, uh, a growing human population and a growing livestock population because the Maasai are traditionally herders. Maasai traditions, like all traditional peoples in Africa, are really under threat um, as the old ways are, are, are being pushed out by, by modern society and you'll see lots of Maasai with, with mobile phones and um, technology and so on. And there's a real threat, a lot of them are moving to the cities. One of those traditions that, that survived well into the 20th century and, and it still is practised in some areas, as you said, was that in order to prove themselves to be warriors, they killed... A lion. They prove their courage by killing a lion, and this is a. You know, this isn't shooting a lion with a, a high-powered rifle. This is staring down a lion that's charging at you and killing it with a spear. So it's something that involves great courage. Maitaranga is uh, the warrior you mentioned, and, and and is in the book. He came from a, a real family of lion killers. His father and his uncle had killed fifteen lions between them. Uh, he obviously aspired to be like them because back then, and we're talking the, the first decade of, of the 21st century, so, in, you know, he killed, he, Maitaranga killed his first lion in 1999 and um, up until then it was very much a rite of passage. It was an act of uh, a, a ritual. Uh, they respected lions. There was, a, there was a connection between them and it was part of their culture. But as the population grew, the lions were in closer and closer proximity with the Maasai and with their cattle, killing more cattle. The Maasai started killing lions in revenge. And so it was no longer a question of ritual. It became a question of revenge. And they were starting to wipe out the lions in that area. And if it had continued that way, there would be no lions left outside the national parks. Maitaranga killed his first lion in 1999. He was just 19 years old. Him telling me about that experience is... Another one of those experiences, a bit like watching a lion or listening to a lion, I realised after he had told me that story that I'd hardly breathe the whole time, I'd hardly move because he was just so focused on, on killing this lion. And back then, that was when the transition started to happen between it being something that was sustainable, that was just a matter of ritual, and something that became a whole new level. And, and lions were being killed, you know, 100 lions were being killed in a year. So what was happening was that he kept killing lions, but when he killed his fourth lion, he was locked up and he was beaten by the police and he was fined and told that much worse awaited him if it happened again. And just after he was released, he thought that a lion had killed his cattle. Two of his cows went missing. And so he became convinced that a lion was to blame. They found some lions nearby and they set out to track them. And so this, he, his first lion had been all about him being becoming a warrior. This was about revenge. And what he did was they tracked them through the bush. He finally was able to kill the lion. It was a beautiful male lion and, you know, he, he thought he was on the cusp of greatness. This was his fifth lion. He'd soon pass his father and his uncles. And he cut open the stomach and the lion's stomach was empty and he realised that he'd killed the lion out of revenge but also wrongly. And that was something that went to the core of who he was because the Maasai really were 
did have a, a very strong respect, a mutual respect with Lyons, and he didn't know what to do after that. It really became his long, dark night of the soul because he really felt as though he'd overstepped the mark and, and, and couldn't imagine killing any more Lyons. And it was kind of shocking to me that that was the turning point, a pivotal point. And he, you know, you describe how he really got very depressed or down and, you know, behaviour changed and, you know, he went inside himself really and and the people around him were surprised and shocked and didn't know quite what to do. No, and they, they at the beginning he, he, no one could question his courage. He'd already killed five lions and, and that's, you know, that's the stuff of legend in Maasai society. But then they'd come to him and ask him to join them on hunts, uh, lion hunts, and he'd turn them away and he'd make excuses. And over time they began to really um, question his courage, to taunt him. And we're talking about extremely proud people uh, who, for whom tradition was everything. And for him, he his whole... Uh, life was geared towards this, to proving himself to be the best warrior of his generation. And all of a sudden he didn't have that and he sort of, in a sense, was between cultures at that moment because he he knew that he couldn't go back to killing lions and yet he hadn't really found meaning other than that in the modern world. And so that that was a real crisis point for him, if you like, where he just he didn't know what to do. His whole identity came under under in question. And, you know, part of that tradition, which was really important with the first kill, was getting a new name. And you quoted him in the book as saying, after four lions, I felt that I had fulfilled my greatest wish was to get a lion name. And I had that name from killing the first lion. When I killed the others, they didn't add a new name. So there was nothing of importance that I received. And it was interesting, your kind of response to that, trying to understand if that was really the only reason why. Sure. It, it was really hard for him to, um, even even years later, it was difficult for him to talk about that time after the fifth line because mm. he still had that pride. When he killed the first line, prior to that, his name was Kamunu Saitoti. When a Maasai kills a lion, he's given a name, uh, a, a new name, and that's how he becomes known. And that's how he became known as Maitaranga, which means the one who was first. And that name comes from him being the one to throw the first spear in that in that moment. When he was talking about it years later, there was it took a long time for me to to prize out of him that it really wasn't that he'd already had enough. If it's hard to know, but mm. if he had cut open the, the lion's stomach and found his dead cows in there and felt justified in the killing then he may have continued his lion-killing ways. There was something that snapped inside him. But even years later, that was difficult for him to talk about because, again, it was a question of pride. He was he went from being, in some ways, the, the most respected warrior of his generation to someone who you know, people were pointing fingers at and, and saying, you know, he's lost his nerve. And, mm. and that, talking about that years later, and it was something that he found really difficult. And so when he said that about, you know, I... I, I didn't get anything from the, the subsequent killings. I'm not sure I believed him and I don't think he expected me to. Yeah. And um, you do also say that he stated his ambition when he was growing up, you know, around this culture and expectation of killing lions and that's a way to demonstrate one's courage and position within the tribe was that, quote, my ambition was to kill more than my father to kill 10. So, in terms of Maasai culture, you quoted Eric Ole Kesoy, who was an experienced Maasai warrior and was talking about just how 
critical and, as he says, an unbreakable bond between the Maasai and the lion, a very strong mutual respect. And so it seems like it's not just about killing that's part of this culture, but also there is a kind of stronger connection there that's deeper than just demonstrating one's strength. Sure. What do you think is that deeper bond? There's a reason why the Maasai choose the lion as their test of courage. It's, it's, it's a recognition of the fact that lions, in a sense, are how the Maasai see themselves. The Maasai see themselves as, as this noble people, as this um, people who have few rivals in, 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 traditional, in their traditional lives in, the, in, in past centuries. They were the rulers of the land wherever they were. And in a sense, they see themselves mirrored in a lion that, that is the, the ruling presence on the plains. So there is a sense that that's why they would choose to kill a lion and that's why they would feel such a strong connection to it. I've heard Maasai talk about the fact that they also consider lions to be the most human of animals in the sense that they live in social groups, which is they're the only cat that live in, in, in social networks. They they eat the same prey as people do. They eat meat. They eat. And so there's obvious affection between lions in the same pride just as there are in, in human societies and so there is that strong connection both in the sense of that's how they measure themselves but it's also they see lions as almost our closest relatives in the natural world that's really really fascinating i can see how that would be the case and you talk about the way that mataranga has this real grace and strength and he does stand out among the other maasai warriors you say in terms of his physical presence but also his inner life as well he is almost the maasai stereotype he is this for some people it would be detached for me it was a very dignified demeanor he was not one of the boys Whenever he would join a conversation, and the first time I met him, I was in a car with a number of Maasai. We were going out to look for lions, and he walked towards the car, and as soon as he got there, all conversation stopped. Um, everyone got out of the way to make room for him. And that's that's not any official position that he holds. He just had a certain gravitas. And when he, uh, one of the conservationists who would later work with him, she talked about as soon as she met him, she knew that he was one of the most important people to get on board just because of his presence uh, and in that sense it's, it's, a, it's a little bit like the lions that that when you know whenever Maitaranga was there everyone knew he was there and everyone was conscious of him and looking to him in a sense for approval. And in terms of the status of lions across Africa obviously it's a vast continent um, but we're looking at the moment in Kenya and of course you travel to other countries within Africa but a lot of people listening may not realise that lions had been so prevalent and they were a huge part of the landscape and have very much in recent times, as you've written, declined very quickly. And there are multiple causes that you state in this book, obviously population growth as one of them and habitat destruction as another. And you also talk about poisonings, which to me was really surprising that that's one of the means by which uh, lions are killed. And it does play into this reason why there is 
a group called Lion Guardians that has come about that you write about in this initial chapter with Maitaranga. And I wonder if you could share with us why Lion Guardians was so important and and what Maitaranga's significance was to that project or is still. Sure. You mentioned poisoning. Mm. You have to understand that a lot of the the killing of lions these lions are being killed not by soldiers with guns. They're being killed by subsistence farmers who, if a lion kills their cattle, they've lost everything. Mm-hmm. The only weapon they have, because hunting lions is illegal in Kenya, the only weapons they have, um, there's a quite insidious poison called carbofurin, which is a natural fertiliser or, or a, something that's used by farmers and is quite readily available. And so that's why the poisoning was taking place, because it was the only method available to a lot of the subsistence farmers to actually take their revenge on the lions who were threatening their livelihood. It's very easy to talk about saving lions from over here, but when when you've only got two cows and a lion each one of them, that's your livelihood gone for the year and and people face starvation. So that's when conservation becomes really complicated and it also is when we need really innovative solutions. And Lion Guardians is one of those. Maitaranga during that year when he was really in, in turmoil because he'd killed the fifth lion. He didn't really know what what he would do next or what direction his life would take. He heard that there were a couple of American conservationists uh, working in the area and they had set up a program called the Lion Guardians. And what the Lion Guardians were, was how it worked, is that there was a really clever appropriation of Maasai tradition. Instead of the young men proving themselves as warriors by killing lions, they would prove their courage by protecting their communities from lions, by warning herders where the lions were, but also protecting the lions in the process. And there were some really clever adaptations of tradition that took place. It was a part of traditional society that when a lion, as we've already seen, that when you kill a lion, you take on a new name. What they did with the Lion Guardians was that when a Maasai warrior captured a lioness and collared her for the purposes of tracking her and so on, that warrior could name that lion. She became their lion. There's a really interesting story when it comes to Maitaranga because when he killed his first lion way back in 1999, long before all of this happened, uh, he was just 19, he killed a lioness and the cub ran off into the bushes. Now, most cubs that are separated from their mother die because they're unable to learn how to hunt, how to become independent on their own. And somehow this lioness survived, although he never knew what happened to it. When he went on a trial run for the first time with the Lion Guardians to, to, to collar a lion, to to name that lion, they were hunting lions out in the bush, hunting obviously not with guns but with a, a tranquilizer dart, and he said, I want that lioness, that's the one I want to put the collar on. They did the collaring, quite an emotional scene where they they get to lay hands on a lion for the first time because the Maasai never actually get to touch the lions until they kill them. So to touch a live lion was was a quite remarkable thing. And it became apparent very soon after that, the two conservationists, um, Dr. Leela Hazza and Stephanie Dolrenry, after this had happened, what happened, they realised that this lion, or Mataranga told them that this lioness was the cub of the very first lion that he'd killed. And so by naming that line, he formed a very special bond with that line. But it was almost like his his act of redemption because this was the cub whose mother he had killed probably seven, eight years before. And it was almost, it was the story that kind of made the Lion Guardians make sense, that he was one of the great lion-killing warriors of his generation. And 
now he was saving her cub. It was it's a really nice juxtaposition as to how they were able to transition the the Maasai traditions and give people meaning through their traditions while at the same time saving lines. Yeah, it seems like there are so many beneficiaries of the situation in the environment, the lions, the Maasai warriors, the farmers, locals, lost herders who the Maasai find when they're out looking for lions. Yeah, it's amazing to think it's such an innovative idea. Um, and, and it's just, been remarkably successful. I mean, the, yeah. what, what was happening often was that because of the changes, because a lot of the young men were going into the cities, often the herding was done by very young children and so these children would often be out in the bush, they'd become lost. The, these lion guardians would go out, they'd find the children, bring them back safely to their family, which obviously um, helped them to, to, to gain credibility within society. They also helped them to track down their cattle when they were lost, to protect the cattle. And it's a funny thing that when I spoke with him about the courage needed to kill a lion, and he said he actually needed far more courage to, as a lion guardian when a group of young Maasai warriors were about to go out and try and kill a lion and standing, bet- not between the lion physically, but standing between them and, and going out to hunt this lion and saying, please don't do this, because, you know, you know the tensions are running high yeah. in that moment. And, and he said it was much scarier trying to convince his own colleagues, his own peers, not to go and hunt a lion than it was to actually hunt a lion in the first place. Yeah, makes total sense. And you cite some really interesting figures about the success of the program. You say that in 2011, for the first time since the program began, every adult lioness in the areas patrolled by the Lion Guardians had cubs. New nomadic males also migrated into the area, which, as you say, was a sure sign that the lion population was rebounding and then you make some interesting contrasts so by 2013 there were nearly 3.5 lions per 100 square kilometers which was up from 1.3 five years earlier so there seems like there are so many metrics that really have shown its success and as we were talking about with livestock they tracked down 92 percent of lost livestock which was over 12,000 cows so in terms of hitting it out of the park on KPIs for an environmental program, it seems like this is one of the greatest examples. It's been an extraordinary success and it's it's something that I don't think they realised would... They expected, I think, to be able to stop the lion killing, but I don't think they realised the impact that that would have upon lion society. A couple of years after I was there, every single lioness in that area had cubs. That hadn't happened for for a long time. It was working for everyone. It was working for the Maasai communities. It was working for the lions. And the reason why this is such a hugely important story is because if you think back to what we said before about the 80% of lions, uh, in some places it's more, some places it's less, but 80% of lions living outside national parks among people. That's why programs like this are so important because it's really easy if you had to do it. It's quite expensive, but you could put a fence around a national park and the lions would be safe and the people outside them would generally be safe. But that's not where lions live. And so when projects like this work, it's this in some ways is the future of conservation in Africa. They're only going to work you know, if we have some sort of recognition that, that the people who live among them have to be looked after as well. And mm. we can, as you say, we can see the results when it does work and this structure has been replicated across Africa in a number of communities. Uh, obviously, it becomes a different question. Um, the Maasai have a particular 
tradition surrounding lions. But in other places, in Ruaha, for example, in Tanzania, the, the Barabag is, is another people, and they have a different approach to lions. So there, there's a need to find that connection. They've done a similar thing called long shields in, in Zimbabwe, again, taking the whole lion guardian idea, but each time they have to adapt it to local culture. And if, if conservation is going to work, if lions are going to survive, these are the sort of programs that, that will make it happen. Yeah, it's great that you raise that because just around the the area that we're talking about where Lion Guardians is in effect, you say that in the same period that we were discussing about success stories, over 100 lions were poisoned or speared to death. And we've discussed some of those reasons why that's happened. So clearly it's still a challenge to find that cultural connection, find something that's very specific to the peoples who are interacting with lions. Absolutely. And it's really hard work because it requires, when Dr. Leela Hazard first went into Maasai land and she lived among the Maasai and she realised she had to understand them before she could do anything. And what's happening is that the lions are being killed at a huge rate while this is happening. But until she found that key, until she understood the traditions enough to be able to come up with a program that, that taps into those, there is a real sense of urgency because lions are disappearing in those sort of areas really quickly. And they're still disappearing. If you go into the areas where lion guardians aren't operating, even just neighbouring valleys or, or regions, the killings are continuing and poisonings, the, the, the ritual killings, and there's obviously um, concerns about trade in lion body parts. Um, it ha- has certainly hasn't reached the level of, of tigers and, and rhinoceroses yet, but you know, there's all of that happening. And somehow we have this incredible island of success, at little islands of success around Africa, and they're the, the things that are going to save lions. And one of the really um, great parts about your book is that you talk about these areas and different challenges that places in Africa face with lions and preserving them and also the kind of conflicts that come up between humans and lions is that you utilise and focus on a range of individual lions and follow their story and you kind of feel like you get to know them and their their individual quirks and the fascinating parts that make them them and clearly um, the, the humans that live with them also have that close understanding of their personalities and, and stories, histories. I mentioned it before, I think that conservationists end up talking to, to each other and I think what we need is stories that ordinary people can connect with because we all still love stories. And I think most people really do want to save lions. By, by telling individual stories, what we're able to do is to connect people in a way, as you say, that to a particular story, but that illustrates a broader point about lions or about traditional peoples and how they're actually living together. And there are a lot of surprising parts of the lion kingdom that do add to the challenge, it seems, in terms of conserving them. And one of them was about their territoriality, particularly obviously the males and the way that they dominate a kind of specific region, which is, I guess, their kingdom. Obviously, there are nomads as well, but it was fascinating when you were recounting a number of stories and what seemed to come up a lot was this taking over of kingdoms and this fascinating fights between different animals and different lions in particular. What happens with lions is that um, they're the only social big cat, well, they're the only social wild cat, really, and so they live in prides, and the core of these prides is a multi-generational sisterhood of, of females. So when a female cub 
is born into a pride. She will grow up and spend her whole life, sometimes that doesn't happen, but as a general rule, spend her whole life surrounded by her sisters, her aunts, her, her mother, her grandmother. It's a, it's a really uh, strong social network and they'll defend each other. They'll set up creches for, their, for the cubs so that each will bring up the other's cubs and, and so on. And so that's the core of the pride. A male cub is born into a pride and that's fine for the first couple of years. But when they reach a couple of years old, they will become a, a threat to the male, their father, who rules over the pride. And usually a pride is ruled over by one, sometimes more, uh, sometimes quite a few more, male lines, brothers, usually related males. When that, that male cub reaches two or three years, the male will kick him out and the male will cast him to the wind, so to speak, and he will set off to become a nomad to try and find his own territory to rule over. What a male lion's driving motivation, if you like, is is to pass on his genes to the next generation of lions. So when he finds a pride, he'll find a pride that's ruled over by other males and he's got to challenge those males and fight them, often to the death. Uh, often one will be driven out uh, into the wilderness, if you like, but they will then take over that pride if they are successful in, in, in trying to, to take over. They'll take over the pride and what happens is that they will kill any dependent cubs that are still there. That sounds pretty brutal and, of course, it is. It's quite heartbreaking to watch because there's no sentiment involved whatsoever. But when a male lion kills the cubs, the female lions will come into estrus and they will mate with the new male lion and then his genes will survive. So what needs to happen is that that lion then needs to hold on to that territory, hold on to that pride for two to three years so that the next generation of cubs can become independent and then his job's done. He may stick around longer. And so what happens is that there's, you have these extraordinary battles to control the pride because this is, in some cases, a male lion's only shot at at doing what he his genes tell him to do, which is to pass on his genes to his offspring. It seems like that's a driver for genetic diversity, or at least it hopes to be. Absolutely. What, the whole reason why young males don't stay with their natal pride, and there are cases where disruption has happened and they've ended up mating with their mothers and so on, and that, that's a recipe for disaster, perhaps not so much in the short term but in the, genetically in the long term, because genetic diversity will mean that lions are less susceptible to disease, they're less susceptible to um, whatever threats to, to birth defects and so on. But when lion society functions properly, what happens is that the males go off and they'll go off somewhere else and they'll probably never return to their the, the pride they were born into because other males will come in, mate with the females and maintain that diverse gene pool. And so that's it does have a, re, a, a purpose as to kicking the males out that ensures, in a sense, that, that a lion population's genes will continue to be healthy and the overall population of lions has a better chance of of surviving when, for example, there was a case in the Serengeti back in the 1990s where um, canine distemper came into the park through some uh, stray dogs in the surrounding communities and um, 1,000 lions were wiped out in, in a very short period of time. When you have genetic diversity, there is a certain number of those lions that will actually survive and ensure that lions can survive. And that's the problem that happens too when you know we have at the moment the last study suggests that there's 22,500 lions left in Africa. That sounds like a lot of lions, but a lot of those are in really small populations. And part of the problem with those is that you have 
a very small gene pool. And so they end up inbreeding and you end up with lion populations that just aren't healthy. And the only way is if there's some sort of movement between populations so that you can, um, it's happened in, uh, in Tanzania in a place called Ngorogoro. There's a crater where there's four lion prides, but because of the crater walls, they can't really leave very easily. And so you have a really unhealthy gene pool. And can you remind me, what was the original kind of projections around where we were starting off at in the 20th century in terms of lion populations? Because it it would be helpful to give people a sense of the difference between 22,000 and (laughs) the original. No one really knows, but at the start of the 20th century, there were at least 200,000 lions. So we're talking a 90% drop. So 90% of lions have gone, and, and this has been described as a catastrophic decline, They've disappeared from 95% of their historical range, so they're only occupying 5% of where they used to be. They've become locally extinct in 26 African countries. They're still present in 28 African countries, but of these, only six of these have a 1,000 lines. So mostly we're talking about really small populations. The other thing to remember about the 22,500 figure is that it sounds like a lot of lions because, you know, there's only 4,000 tigers left. There's only 1,000 mountain gorillas left, and that's... That's true. They're, they're critically endangered and, and, and in great trouble. The problem is that if lions were to get down to that number, that it would be too late by then. In the case of tigers, for example, tigers are a solitary species and so they're more widely spread. So 4,000 is the equivalent of a lot more lions, if you like. Gorillas are social, but there are only four populations. And so if you were down to four populations of lions, you'd, you know, we'd be in great trouble. So I think it's even though it sounds like a lot more lions than, than perhaps some other species... Because of the way lions live, because of their social structure, because of where they're distributed, they're actually in a lot of trouble. Yeah. And in terms of the centrality of the lion in the African ecosystem or many ecosystems within Africa, you write about the fact that take lions out of the equation and ecosystems fall apart. Without lions, populations of other species increase unchecked, habitats are destroyed, and there is no barrier to humankind's final destruction and desperate takeover of barely habitable land. It's not surprising to someone who might study conservation to realise that lions might be an important part of an ecosystem, but it sounds like they are pretty much the pivotal part. They are. Lions are our finger in the dike, if you like. They're they're the keystone species. What happens when you take a lion population out? It doesn't happen straight away. But what happens is everything gets thrown out of balance. You end up with, uh, depending on where they are, but but with um, antelope or wildebeest species growing out of control in terms of their numbers. Lions keep those sort of populations healthy and in check by killing old and injured animals. So the health of the wildebeest also end up being affected. If there's too many wildebeest, they eat the grasslands. And over time, what happens is that um, desertification takes place. It happened in uh, the US, in Yellowstone National Park. Wolves were wiped out in the 1920s. And a lot of people cheered and said that's great because they were going into neighbouring communities and eating people's cows or whatever it was. What they found, however, was that without wolves in the ecosystem, elk numbers became out of control. Because of the impact of not having the elk under control, a lot of tree species suffered and became unhealthy. What happened when they put them back in was that wolves actually put the ecosystem back into balance. It's something that can be hard to imagine, 
But what happens is when you take out the top predator, everything cascades down through an ecosystem in a way that won't change the ecosystem in a year or two years. But over time, the whole health of the ecosystem, and there was a case that I've written about in the book in, in, in Western Zambia where one lioness survived. And what happened was the hyena population got out of control. There were 200 hyenas. The whole ecosystem started to fall apart. And we can see it happening, and we can see it happening over time, but it's very hard to put lions back once you've lost them. There's another aspect to it as well, and that is that they've done a scientific study that the cost of saving lions is almost exactly the same as the cost of saving Africa's wild places. If you can save lions, you save Africa's wild places, and it will cost the same to do that. And that's a remarkable statistic because that means that if we save lions and if we get this right, we won't save every ecosystem, but at least the ecosystems that we do save will be healthy, that will function in the way that they're supposed to. Mm, that is a fascinating and really, really important motivating statistic, I hope. And I did want to just quickly pick up on the lioness that you mentioned, because given that she was a, a solitary lioness and there were no male lions around for such a, a long period of time, it seems like in your story that you recount that it actually changed her behaviour and she was interacting with humans, one human in particular, in a totally abnormal, I guess, way than, than what a lion would normally do and, and she was almost like projecting onto a male human. I wonder if you could tell us about that relationship and what that kind of revealed to you when you met that person and, and understood that interaction, that effect of having no males for a lioness being a very social creature, as you say, that's really inherent and critical to their life. Absolutely. She's one of those lions that changed, and, and every lion is its own story, but she's one of those lions that changed the whole way that I I thought about lions and their relationship with humans. She had been, there were a large number of lions in this National Park out in Western Zambia. There'd been a poaching outbreak that was just across the border from Angola where there was a civil war, there were guns everywhere. And the National Park authorities effectively abandoned the park. When they went back in in 2002, and you, you spoke of one of these, these people, his name was Jacob Tembo, and he was my guide when I visited Lewa. And he went back in looking for lions after they thought that they'd all gone. And he came across this lioness and you know, everyone was so excited because they thought there are still lions here. And she was calling in the night. They heard her calling in the night. Lions only call really because they want to contact other lions. She had perhaps been almost a decade on her own. She was still calling. They're such social animals that she was still calling in the hope that another lion would answer. Over time, they followed her, hoping that she would lead them to, to other lions. And, of course, they didn't. They suddenly realised that she was the last lioness there. And what happened was that one night he was sleeping in his tent and he was there with a, a filmmaker from South Africa and uh, he could hear hyenas making noise out across the plains and he thought uh, the filmmaker's going to want to film this. So he got out of his tent to walk over and wake up the, the filmmaker and as he stepped out of his tent, he... He says that he saw something that was darker than the darkness and he realised that it was the lioness lying down in front of his tent. And I've been with, uh, with Jacob Tembo out in the bush and he's, he's a man mountain. He's this huge guy. He, he goes nowhere without his AK-47. Lovely guy, but he's a really formidable presence. But even he would not normally want to put himself in that position where he's a metre away from a lion that in the darkness because that's when lions hunt. 
Before he could decide what to do, he just froze. And before he could decide what to do, the lioness stood up, walked away, let him pass. So he thought, oh, I'll keep going. He walked over, woke the filmmaker, and the lioness followed. But she wasn't stalking him. She was actually just following him. Over time, what ended up happening was that she'd come into their camp and she'd lie just a few metres away from them. On one night, he was sleeping in his tent and he was lying up against the canvas of the tent and he woke and he could feel this rumbling and he thought he he was a bit disoriented and he thought it might have been an earthquake or something. And he suddenly realised that the lioness was actually lying up against him, only canvas separating the two of them, and she was purring. And she was, there was this moment where he was lying there in the night and this lioness is lying next to him like a big pussycat, purring. And another night they were out, they heard her hunting and so they, they could hear the, the, the wildebeest crying out and so on. So they got all their gear together, took off in the car and as they were driving to the point, they came across the lioness, Lady Liwa, and she was coming towards them. When she saw them, she turned around, led them back to the wildebeest and then reenacted for them the whole act of hunting and at each stage stopped and looked up at them. This is almost unheard of behaviour in a lion and, you know, there's a whole lot to the story where the local people yeah. believe that she is one of their ancestors who became a lion after her death and so on. And so all of that obviously fueled that. But even if you don't believe this, there was this lioness that obviously just was looking for company. And she found it in people. And that's that's a remarkable thing because that just doesn't happen. <laughs> and one of the statements you make and observations was that in your mind, it seemed like loneliness was a driver because for one week at least, she was with the humans and hadn't been hunting and feeding. And it seemed like her need for company in the form of humans was stronger than her desire to eat food. Sure. And she she did a lot of remarkable things. Later, they were able to bring in some lines and, and it was all about building up a pride. And, and again, there's a whole story around that. But when a couple of these new lines came in, they were obviously wild, wild lines that had been brought in from elsewhere. And they had no such relationship with people or with, with, with Jacob Tembo. And one night, uh, Jacob and the filmmaker were filming and they drained the battery um, using the spotlight to film. And so they had to get out and push push the car now they were quite used to lady lewa who would be quite close to them but what happened was that lady lewa was there but these two male lions also were there and suddenly as soon as they got out of the car and it's a golden rule of being out in africa is you don't get out of the car because lions will then see you as as potential prey the lions charged at jacob tembo and the filmmaker and Lady Lewa jumped in between them and swatted at them and drove them off. She actually protected her two human friends, if you like, and it nearly had a really sinister postscript because later that night Jacob was sleeping in his tent and the two male lions came and ripped the tent to shred and attacked him and he had to fire his gun into the air to, to scare them off. It really just reinforces how unusual, reinforces how unusual her behaviour was and mm. how remarkable, it wasn't just that she wanted the company, she was going to stand between charging lions to protect them. Yeah, yeah. It's a really beautiful story. I do hope people can read the whole chapter to get a sense of the whole picture. To finish out the conversation, I did want to touch on something that's a bit of a important part in this story, which you definitely focus on in the book, and I think it is important to have a full picture, which is um, the discussion around hunting concessions and the role of trophy hunting and tourism and whether hunting concessions are truly a good thing or a bad thing. And 
and I was interested in that dilemma that you bring up and the competing arguments about it and the role that outsiders play as well in playing into that system. And I just wonder whether you could share with us your observations on that and what you came to after visiting so many nations in Africa and witnessing the different arrangements. Personally, I find the very notion of shooting a lion to be abhorrent. I mean, it's not something I can imagine Mm. why anyone would think that it was more beautiful to see a lion mounted on a wall than wild in Africa. I don't understand. But there is a very strong conservation argument that if we can put a value on wildlife, then people will protect them, the local people, the people who have to live alongside lions. A large proportion of the wild lions in Africa live in areas where hunting is permitted. Some trophy hunters, I don't want to call them sport hunters because I don't think there's a whole lot of sport involved. It's not uh, It's not like the old days when you'd have Ernest Hemingway stalking them through the bush or, or Theodore Roosevelt and, and they're actually genuinely uh, on foot and putting themselves in a little bit of danger. This is usually a lion is, is, is baited onto a kill. The hunter will hunt them from a hide, perhaps 50 metres away, I'm not sure of the distance, but there's very little sport. All they have to do is shoot straight. But trophy hunters... What happens is that they will often pay up to $50,000 just for a permit to shoot a lion. That $50,000 is a huge amount for a local community and provided the money goes into that local community, it can encourage local communities to protect lions because if lions are there, then they will have the opportunity to earn that money. Also, a lot of the hunting concessions are in areas that are not suitable for photo tourism. They're not very pretty. They're, They're scrub and so on. And so... If this was not used for hunting, if these areas were not used for hunting, they may be cleared for agriculture and important habitat would be lost. So, so hunting can have a contribution in terms of making, making it worthwhile for people to protect lions. The problem is that that doesn't always happen. The only way it works is if we have sustainable quotas. That means that you're not shooting too many lions. It also means that you're only shooting males of a certain age, which if lions are over seven, then that's generally considered okay because they've probably had time to already bring up a cohort of cubs and it's best not to shoot lions, obviously, that are in control of a pride because, as we've seen in Zimbabwe, and I've explained this in the book, it causes great social disruption and what we were talking about before with the infanticide. The problem is that most hunting doesn't actually follow any many of these rules, particularly in places like Tanzania, and you have what is an ideal, which is that that hunting can do good work, but in practice it doesn't really, it's only in very few places where that's happening, sometimes in Namibia, some places in Zimbabwe. There was a case back in um, 2014 in Namibia where the Namibian government auctioned off a permit to shoot a critically endangered black rhinoceros. Now, nowhere in Africa are you allowed to shoot black rhinos because they're they're critically endangered. But this rhino was past its breeding age. It was a danger to other rhinos. They promised to put the money from the auction of this permit back into black rhino conservation. And a hunter from America bid 350000 US dollars for the right to kill this rhino. Now, that raised really complicated issues because a lot of people who are against hunting are against hunting because they don't want to see any animal killed. And I'd be happy with that in an ideal world. But this rhino was, was a danger to other rhinos and so on. And the hunter who made the winning bid said, look, if any conservationist will top this bid, I'm happy to let the black rhino live. And, of course, no one did. And so it's a really complicated story. There, there was another story in the book that I talk about in the introduction of, of a lioness that had been killing cattle outside a national park. So they had to take her out of the area. But then they didn't know what to do with her. 
And so what they did was they put her in a pen somewhere while they decided what to do with her. And in order for her to be kept alive in that pen, they had to kill other animals. And so there's often this desire to say hunting is bad because we're killing animals. But on the ground in Africa, it's never that simple. In order to actually save some animals, in order to actually ensure that habitats are protected, sometimes under very strict circumstances, hunting can be a solution. It's not one I like. I don't think it's one that any conservationist like, but it's one that, if done properly, can make a difference. Mm. It, it reminds me of um, another moral or ethical dilemma where it seems so great in its ideal form, but then in practice doesn't often doesn't work, not always, but um, many times hasn't worked, and that's the idea of or concept of offsets. And it seems like, you know, even in Victoria and our grasslands, the idea of offsets hasn't been necessarily that beneficial. But I can see those two sides and the arguments on both, but it seems that you can have quite a personal response depending on your moral or ethical framework. You know, it can be really difficult to to understand. Sure, and um, I think most of us most of us have that reaction. Um, mm. I mean, the very notion of I don't know if you've heard of them talk about the big five in Africa, which is the elephant, the buffalo, the rhino, the leopard, and the lion. And these are the animals that are considered the must sees on safari. Where those big five actually come from are the five most dangerous animals to hunt. So that if you shoot back in the early twentieth century, when a hunter would shoot a lion or a leopard or any of these animals, these are the ones that were considered, if you didn't kill it the first time, it would likely kill you. That doesn't happen anymore. That's not what hunting's about in most cases. And I I find most hunting to be quite, well, apart from being unsustainable, I find it to be quite unjustifiable. Where it can work, however, and and, and where it does work, you know, there are places where some, and, and I've talked a little bit about this in the book, there are some species in South Africa where it has been claimed that these species have come back from extinction because they were able to survive on hunting concessions where uh, ecosystems were protected and habitat was protected. Mm. Um, But again, that visceral reaction that you're talking about, it's why the world, the phenomenon of Cecil in 2015, the lion that was shot in Zimbabwe, that visceral reaction is how most people responded and that was fantastic. It was a wonderful thing to see so many people caring about lions and, and donating money to lion conservation and, and in the book, at the back of the book, I put a number of organisations that do work in lion conservation that, mm. that accept donations and some of them were involved in that fight to save Cecil. What my book is about is that it's a lot more complicated than that. That was a very clear story of right and wrong and and very often it's not that simple and that's that's why we need the sort of what we were talking about before, the, the innovative uh, conservation programs like Lion Guardians, and, and there are a lot of them happening in Africa, some of, which, some of which I've written about in the book. That's why we need them because it's not always as simple as hunter bad, you know, we should stop hunting. It doesn't always work that way. Anthony, you have brought a huge amount of nuance to this story and a lot of passion and insight, and um, I really got engrossed in the book so much. I really enjoyed all of the stories that you told, and of course, there are a number we haven't touched on naturally, so people can go back to the book and read it. It's called The Last Lions of Africa, and um, if people did want to, to follow up, I'm guessing going to your book, of course, would be the first thing to read it about this issue and understand it better, but another thing might be to go to those links that you've provided and link in with any of those groups that you've listed as being important to the lion survival. Absolutely. All of um, Some of those groups which I've mentioned at the back of the book are involved in the actual stories that I've written about in the book. Some of them are just doing great work that you know, I couldn't 
necessarily cover all the stories in the book, but there's a lot of good work going on out there and a lot of all of those organisations are doing good work and so that's a great place to start, yes. Thank you so much, Anthony, for joining us today and uh, congratulations on this book and, um, yeah, it's been a, a real pleasure. And also thank you for taking beautiful photographs of these lions as well. We haven't had a chance to talk about your photography but um, I do hope people can also look at the beautiful photos you've taken. Thanks, Amy. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Now I'm really, really pleased to speak with an Uncommon Sense regular, Dr Emma Shortis, who is based at the RMIT's EU Studies Centre um, for Excellence. And I'm so glad that we get to cover US politics. Of course, I did mention um, we'll be rescheduling our chat with Cartier on metallic green carpenter bees, so do listen out for that. Um, but it's a very timely chat. So welcome, Emma, and thank you so much for joining us at the last minute. Hi, Amy. That's that's no problem. It's, it's hailing and cold in Melbourne, so I'm I'm happy to chat. Ha! <laughs> it's it's really not very great, is it? It's like no, it's not. Not this is indoor weather. That's why <laughs> I was playing jazz before, but I think no one heard it because the system died. So <laughs> yeah, it's it's a day for everyone, I think, in Melbourne. Yeah. Well, I hope people can rug up and uh, get comfortable and settle in for this chat. And um, hopefully we don't uh, dismay people too much, but let's not self-censor. No Um, promises. No, not at all. Now, Emma, uh, God, there are quite a lot of topics to cover, but I feel like the first and most obvious topic would be um, how the coronavirus uh, is affecting the way that the election will be conducted and the fact that each state has different arrangements um, in terms of voting and postal voting, how they submit those postal votes when they do, but also particularly the role that um, the, the government, Trump's government has to play uh, in terms of the postal service and how they're currently managing the post. And I wonder, given this whole situation, I mean, I never thought we'd be talking about the post um, in like 2020 is like this really important um, electoral element. But could you explain to those of us who aren't really very familiar with, you know, the conduct of a, a US presidential election, what these kind of challenges are right now and why they've come up? Yeah, sure. Look, I I guess the the short answer to that is that it is a complete mess and and it was a mess even before the United States was hit with this catastrophic global pandemic, which the administration has has completely failed to contain. So I I think you're right, Amy, it's really interesting to be talking about the, the postal service as a kind of linchpin of, of American democracy and American elections. But that is exactly what it is. And, and you know, the so-called founding fathers saw that. They saw the Postal Service as as crucial to American democracy, to communication, um, and, and that people had a right to a Postal Service, you know, no matter where they lived. So, so it's seen as really important, I think, from the beginning, and particularly in light of the 
global pandemic that the US is failing to contain, postal votes are going to be crucial to the upcoming election in November because of really practical concerns. You know, people don't want to and nor should they go to crowded polling places and wait in line for hours and, and risk infection. So there's a big campaign for um, basically, you know, countrywide mail-in voting. Um, lots of states use mail-in voting already. Um, lots of people use absentee voting. You know, Trump is making a distinction between those two things, but there isn't really one. Absentee voting is, is voting by mail and, you know, military service people do that. So there's this big push, I think, to get mail-in voting so that people can vote safely and to enfranchise people who, who you know, otherwise wouldn't want to risk going to vote or wouldn't be able to vote for various reasons, um, you know, because polling places for in some places are, are really difficult to access. So this mail-in voting is really important. The big challenge is that Donald Trump is alleging, again, as usual, we, with no evidence, that mail-in voting is can be subject to massive fraud. Now, there's, again, no evidence for that, but Trump is basically saying that because mail-in voting tends to favour Democratic candidates, um, it tends to enfranchise more people, which um, I think, again, favours Democrats. So that's part of the reason that Trump is so against it. And when he is tweeting about mail-in voting being, being open to massive fraud, what he's kind of doing, I think, is, is laying the groundwork to challenge the legitimacy of an election result, especially an election result that says that he loses. So the reason the Postal Service, of course, is so important to that, to go, to go back to your question, Amy, is that the Postal Service is going to be what manages that process. You know, they are going to be sending out mail-in ballots to people, they're going to be getting them back and managing the kind of process of getting them to poll in places to be counted. So this is a huge job in the face of this global pandemic. You know, we could be seeing more people using mail-in ballots than have ever used them before. And asking the Postal Service to do this is, I think, a really difficult task because what the Trump administration has been doing, and, and of course successive administrations before that, is basically defund the Postal Service, you know, in favour of private contractors. It's that kind of I guess, evergreen story of, of government services being farmed out to, to private companies um, who are, you know, interested in, in making a profit and not interested in public service. And, and Trump has been, I guess, ratcheting up that and in efforts to defund the postal service. We've been seeing lots of stories about, you know, post offices being closed and, and failing to, to process mail. So, that, I think, in the lead-up to the election is of enormous concern and would be of enormous concern, I think, you know, if we had a competent administration that was acting in good faith. And that is something that we do not have at the moment. Mm. And um, it's interesting that you say that and, you know, the, the Postal Service has been undermined because over in America, and no doubt you would be better, more familiar with this than me, but it seems like, you know, ordering things online and having them delivered. Of course, there are courier services separate to the postal service, but it does seem like America runs on delivery and post and, you know, convenience and people not having to go to places and being able to, you know, engage in retail type things online. So, you know, that has implications. But then I guess when you're pointing out now that it can totally affect the election outcome, um, yeah, it it's kind of blows your mind to think of the consequences. 
Yeah, it really does. And and you're right that the, the US completely runs on, on that kind of, um, I guess, postal service, a lot of which is contracted out privately. You know, if you have Amazon, for example, you can order same-day delivery sometimes within a few hours. But I think the, the crucial thing there with that kind of privatisation thing is that you know, you can do that if you live in an in an urban centre. So you can get your Amazon delivery really quickly if you live in, you know, in New York City or, or Philadelphia or somewhere like that. But you can't if you live in rural America, you know, if you if you live far from a regional centre where it's not profitable for Amazon to offer that free postage. And what they do then is farm that out to the United States Postal Service, to the government agency that runs postal service. So when you're undermining the postal service, the way that that affects people um, can be very different. And when you're talking about people's ability to vote, I think that's really scary because it's another and yet another way that Americans are being disenfranchised and, and done so on a very unequal basis. Yeah. And it was interesting to see the 2016 figures around postal votes um, because almost a quarter of votes were cast via the post. And of course, as you say, given this pandemic we're in, of course, that's going to rise substantially. Um, and there are six states planning to hold all mail ballot elections so far as well. So that will have huge effects. But one of the things people had pointed out and, and you know, local Americans on Twitter were saying, oh, of course, you could put it in the post, but you could also turn up and actually drop off your postal ballot to a certain drop-off point in some states. Of course, that does raise some risk of contracting virus, but apparently you don't have to wait in line for that. What's the situation, like, in terms of the post? Is How widely available is that second option of not actually posting it in the post but hand-delivering it? So it's not, as you say, it varies from state to state. This is part of the absolute hot mess that is the American electoral system. So some states make it really easy to do that. You know, they offer the option of posting the ballot in, you can drop it off. Um, other states make it incredibly difficult to even request a mail-in ballot. You know, you have to jump through an enormous amount of hoops, f- fill out a, a ridiculous amount of forms, have all of this ID. Um, and that very much depends on the basically the political leadership of, pati- of particular states. So the states you mentioned, Amy, that are um, offering mail-in voting um, tend to lean Democrat, if not mm. be, be controlled by Democrats. So there's that enormous partisan divide, which speaks to, I think, the bigger problem in American politics, which is that the electoral system is administered by elected politicians rather than independent officials, which I think is a, a huge reason for this undermining of confidence in that system. And I think, you know, even in states where they are offering that, that I suppose, more democratic option, Amy, of allowing people to, to drop off their votes, you then have the issue of the votes, how the votes are counted and how states are set up, you know, purely just logistically to manage that immense volume of ballots that they are going to have to count. But then also there's the enormous political pressure that comes with counts that are slow. You know, mail-in votes are much slower to count logistically. You know, you need more people working more quickly. And when you add that to the enormous pressure of, of election coverage, you know, where where cable news outlets have kind of tickers counting, counting down to when a result is going to be announced. You know, I was reading something this morning that was saying it could take weeks for all of these mail-in ballots to be counted. It could be Thanksgiving, which is the end of November before we have an election result, which is really concerning, I think, when you have at the same time Donald Trump tweeting about how we must have an election result 
on the day or the day after the election because that to me is him foreshadowing legal challenges to stop counts which has precedence in American history so so these Maryland ballots I think are just wrapped up and kind of you know I guess symptomatic of just the broader mess that the American electoral system is in. Yeah, I definitely don't think we can guarantee any happy endings in this conversation. Sorry. <laughs> Apologies, listeners. Um, yeah, it was, that's pretty dire. Um, I I did read that tweet from the 31st of July where he wrote, must know election results on the night of the election, not days, months or even years later, exclamation um, mark, which, yeah, is pretty revealing of his current mindset. Um when I was reading about voter fraud and the actual prevalence of that conduct within American society, or at least proof of it, proven cases, there seemed to be very few um, cases of, of postal ballot fraud. Um, between 2000 and 2012, um, an Arizona, Arizona State University um Voter fraud database found 491 cases of postal ballot fraud out of hundreds of millions of votes. And in Washington Post, uh, a Washington Post review of last time, 2016 election, there was one proven case of postal voting fraud. So it seems like this isn't something that anyone should actually be truly concerned by in terms of the list of priorities of election interference. Um, postal voting fraud seems to be far down on the list, but there are other elements of interference um, that have been or that are being alleged and, of course, that people are concerned about. Of course, Joe Biden, the Democratic um, candidate, is particularly concerned as well. And I wonder where we're at in terms of those concerns about how else the election may be interfered with. Yeah, look, well, I think part of the reason that, you know, with some people, Trump's allegations, as you say, which are completely baseless about, about fraud and mail-in voting, part of the reason they have so much traction is because there is so little trust in the American system because it, it is so open to corruption. And I think, you know, of course, there, there are concerns about outside interference coming from Russia, which I think are legitimate, but the reason that they that is even possible um, and the reason that it has an effect is because the system is so open to corruption. And you can see that happening all the time with um, particularly re Republican state governments disenfranchising millions of people, you know, requiring ID um, for voting, which disenfranchises mindset and minority groups um, over others, particularly over white voters. You see... Um, blatant political gerrymandering, you know, where, where governments draw electoral boundaries to favour themselves so that you have, you know, quite ridiculous situations in some states where the Republicans who, who control state houses have lost the, pop, the popular vote by extraordinary margins but still control all the houses of government in states. So it, the process is open, I think, to corruption from, from that point of view. But then there are also just really basic things like so many polling places, particularly in poor areas of the United States, don't have voting machines that work. You know, they're so outdated mm. that they, they actually just don't function, that they record incorrect votes um, or the, the newer systems that don't work. You know, you have electoral officials who aren't trained in how to use new systems. And so you have that kind of, I guess, mundane disaster of democracy in the US, which effects and electoral result. And then a, a kind of overarching view to look at, which is that 
the president, the elected president so many times has actually lost the popular vote and, and has won the presidency through the Electoral College, which is a legacy essentially of slavery in the United States and efforts to polite, to, to preserve slavery historically in the United States, which is something that the US just has has failed to deal with. You know, of course, it's not the only Western country in, in that position, but it's failed to kind of rec- reconcile, I think, that, that deeply racist legacy in its electoral system, which is part of the reason we're also seeing the wave of protests in the United States that we're seeing today. So, so this kind of interference and, and corruption is leading or has caused a, a legitimacy crisis that I think is only going to get worse by, by November. Mm. And it does remind me, uh, America's also reduced the number of polling places in states. So there'll be less places and longer lines if people do actually turn up to polling places in some areas. Yeah, exactly. And, and we've seen that, you know, quite recently in, in elections, in midterm elections, where people are reporting, you know, they're waiting sort of upwards of seven or eight hours to cast a vote and then, you know, getting to a machine that doesn't work. So I expect we'll see lots of those stories on the 3rd of November. Mm. Um, a couple of things uh, to close out this discussion that seem to be really critical at the moment in America. Um, one that is probably has far more repercussions, which is the coronavirus and the fact that um, the, the virus in America is spreading so severely and um, quickly now that it is really, um, it already was out of control, but it's very concerning now to see that um, the US had passed 4.7 million confirmed cases of infection, which is more than a quarter of the global total. And he's been uh, falsely claiming that the US is in fact doing very well, as well as any nation um, which, of course, is inaccurate. Uh, and I just wonder about that and um, and, Do- and uh, President Trump also undermining uh, people like Anthony Fauci and Dr Burks and calling her uh, recently pathetic when she was talking about the concerns of the spread of coronavirus. Um, we seem to, you know, not have any real back down on the coronavirus, and yet it seems like... Um, at least in the polling figures, perhaps some Americans are becoming more and more aware of Trump's uh, clear disregard for the well-being and lives of many Americans. Yeah, I think so. I think that is absolutely reflected in in some of the more recent polls, and that's that's because Amy, as you say, you know, you've, we've surpassed now 4.7 million infections. And I'm, I'm just looking at the counter and it's uh, the death count is now at 155,000 people. You know, I remember talking to you a few months ago and being kind of incredulous yeah. that 1,200 people had died. And and that was only a few months ago. So it is, it is just extraordinary, I think, that this many people have died. Um, and look, I think we're seeing a, a little bit of a turnaround from Trump. It's obviously um, not enough and far too late because the virus is spreading so much and it is spreading into Republican strongholds. I think that's why you're seeing a concern when you're when places like Texas are being overwhelmed, where hospitals in Texas are being overwhelmed, the administration is finally starting to pay attention. Um, that's why you're seeing Trump cancel events in Florida, for example, um, and, and to pare back the Republican National Convention, which is a big step for him because we know how much he loves those rallies and those public events. But I think people around him are getting increasingly worried about how this is affecting the base and, and Republican strongholds, which, again, is a complete indictment of, of 
the Trump administration that that's what it takes for, for any action to happen. But I think things will just keep getting worse, to be honest, in the US because Trump has said time and time again he is refusing to do any to, to lock down at all um, because he he's not willing to risk, I think, further damage to the economy. Now, of course, you know, that damage will come when, when the death count and, and the virus is spreading um, so significantly, but he is continuing to refuse to do anything drastic. So, unfortunately, I think we're just going to see these multiple crises kind of um, compound and, and feed into each other in the lead up to, to an election in November. Mm. Um, just finally, Emma, TikTok. I mean, I don't know if this is really important news, to be honest, but Donald Trump wanted to ban it, and now it seems like he's changed his mind if Microsoft buys it. Um, why is Trump kind of fixated on TikTok? And, uh, I mean, I think a lot of people have joked maybe Sarah Cooper was having an effect, but what are your thoughts on, on that situation? Look, I, I wouldn't put it past Donald Trump to, to go after TikTok because of something like Sarah Cooper. We know how much he cares about things like that and how much it affects him when, when things like that are getting traction, um, especially things mocking him. Look, you know, I think this is part of Trump's um, efforts, basically his xenophobic efforts against China, you know, when he's talking mm. about the China virus and and the way that China um, uses technology, that's part of that. It's also, you know, again, with Trump, possibly just an effort to distract from some pretty dire numbers um, in terms of death count and also in terms of the economy, the US economy. So, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't put much stock in it. And I think it's also Trump doing what he does, you know, making a big announcement and then backing down when the, when the reality of things confronts him. Yeah, yeah. Emma, thank you so much for chatting with us today. It's been absolutely fascinating and disturbing as usual. <laughs> and I wish you all the best with your mental and physical health. Thank you, Amy, to, to you too and to all of your listeners. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.